Mic test, one, two, three, one, two, three. Thank you. Just because I have to meet with... Um Kids. And then I'll get to the 
question. Something going around Well, the weirdest part for me was Naomi has had a cough for a while. She's been negative for COVID, and she was at school, but then she gets an ear infection. All from the school that Mike down for you. But what you can do is you went back to school on Wednesday. Yeah, good to see you too. Uh, yeah, we made it through. Yeah. Are they okay now? I think so. I've been checking in with Ash. So um, they're still recovering. So yeah. Kyle, we don't have a second Have you heard about this cancer vaccine? Yeah, Salmonella. Ashley, but I hadn't heard of it. It's okay.
think it's Anna. Anna's right in the picture. Oh, she's so close. Should I just leave the stage? Or yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. <coughs> Good morning, everyone. Hello, hello. Welcome to Christchurch, Toronto. We're going to begin our service with a gathering song, a song that I think all the kids know very well. Go tell it on the mountains. And if you're new here, I see a lot of new people. Welcome to our church, and we'll sing together to our God. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Christchurch Toronto. My name is Kyle Hackman. I'm one of the pastors here at Christchurch Toronto. I don't recognize a lot of you, and so my hunch is there's a lot of people visiting. We're glad that you're visiting our church on this special Sunday morning. Uh, we are gathering together, as churches are all around the world and all around this city, 
reminding ourselves that the God who created the heavens and the earth enters into relationships with his human beings. And that might sound foreign and even sci-fi-like to you, but we are convinced this is true from what we read in the scriptures, and we're convinced this is true from what we've experienced in our lives. And our service is going to begin with a call to worship adopted from the 50th Psalm. In a sense, as God himself tells us to come together to be his people, to worship him, and he promises to give to us his good gifts. Would you please join me in this call to worship? I will read the leader's line. I'd ask you to join me in the all section. The mighty God summons the earth from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets. Our God comes and will not be silent. God calls and we respond to his love. The heavens declare God's righteousness. We tell of God's glories. Offer up to God your thanksgiving, and our God will hear us, save us, and stay with us forever. At this time, I'm going to offer a prayer of adoration. At the conclusion, we will recite the prayer Jesus instructed his disciples to pray. If you're unfamiliar with the words to that prayer, it's found on the top of page four, but let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that you have created this world in such a way that though despite our sins and our selfishness and our arrogance and our pride, you continue to move towards us in love and to make yourself known to us in the most mysterious of ways and to show us your love. We thank you that you do not give up on us no matter how far away we may feel and that your kindness towards us is seen daily in the gifts of grace we receive in new life and the sun and the moon and the stars and all the foods that are available for us. This morning, we especially are mindful of the gift of your son, Jesus, who came to this earth not to be for us supremely an example of what the good life looks like, but to be for us a savior. And the ways in which the work of your son has spread throughout this world so that all are coming to a place where they know that your son is indeed king of kings and lord of lords. We especially thank you that he died on the cross to pay the price, the debts that we incurred because of our behaviors. And we ask now, Father, as we assemble together, that you would be patient with us as our minds drift away, as we are tempted to think of other things, as our hearts are prone to doubt, that you would make yourself known to us clearly, that you would speak to us through your word and through your word proclaimed. And in your kindness, you'd bend your ear from heaven and listen as we lift these songs up to your name and you'd bless us with more and more of your presence. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior, who taught us to pray. Our Our Father Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. You can take a seat, and at this time we're going to light the second Advent candle. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. The one who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We will light this candle as a sign of the coming light of of Christ.
I will lead the blind by a road they do not know. By the path they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I will do, and I will not forsake them. Come, Lord Jesus, our light and our salvation. Let, Let us, us walk, walk in, in the light of the Lord. Man, at this time, would you rise and join us in singing, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free from our fears and sins. Release us, let us find our rest in thee. Strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Joy Born to 
Amen. Please be seated. Well, at this point of our service, as we've just sung about this great hope that belongs to us, because Christ has come to this earth in the form of a baby, and he grew uh, to be a man. He lived a perfect life. He died a death that is a death we owed for our sins, and he offers a true and full forgiveness. At this time, it might seem foreign to think of coming together and confessing our sins, but we do this every week. And we do it not to get God off our back and not to sort of hope for a week of good luck if we can just sort of forget, get all these sins off of our shoulders and get rid of the burden of these sins. We do this because we believe that our God is gracious and he's quick to forgive and that he's not uh, turned away from our brokenness, turned away from our sins, 
that in fact, as he hears us confess our sins, he changes us and makes us into new people. So in light of that, I invite you to join me in this prayer of confession, which is found on page 7 of your bulletin. Let us pray. Lord, we have not kept watch for you. We have occupied ourselves with our own concerns. We've not waited to find your will for us. We've not acknowledged the needs of the people around us. We've not acknowledged the love that has been shown to us. Forgive us for our lack of watchfulness. Help us to wait to know your will. Help us to look out for the needs of others. Help us to work and watch for your coming. Amen. At this time, we're going to have a time of silence where you can uh, search your heart and personally and privately confess your sins to God. During this time, I'd ask you to confess your sins to God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we spend a small amount of time reflecting on our behaviors this past week, one thing that we're sure of is that we are more of a mess than we want to admit. There's things we've done and we've known they're wrong, we've known they've harmed others and we've done them. There's things we've done that we know hinders a relationship with you and we've participated in them. And there's also a whole mess of things that we found ourselves caught up in that we wonder whether or not these were good things to do for the sake of our neighbor and for the sake of knowing you. And the more we think about our sins, the more we realize that there's even some good things we've done this week, but we've done them for horrible motives. Trying to get attention on ourselves, trying our best to atone for some other wrong we've done this past week. All we can say as we stand before you, Father, is that we are a mess. And if our salvation depended on us keeping an accurate spreadsheet of all of our sins, who could stand before you? We are sinners and we make no excuses about it. But we come before you and we plead and ask that you would remember Jesus Christ who came to our world and was a human being just like us. And you'd remember his death on the cross for us. And that you'd forgive us all our sins, even the sins we're not even clear about. Not because of our ability to repent of our sins, not because of our ability to acknowledge our wrong, but because of who Christ is. Forgive us these, our sins, Father, but make us a people who don't grow complacent, but who seek to watch out for the good of our neighbor above our own and and seek to harmonize and, and, and work as much as possible in growing closer to you as we grow closer to one another. Please, Father, forgive us of our many sins and grant to us the, the courage and the passion and the persistence to fight sin so that we might accurately reflect your goodness to this world and that we might know you in a more pure and perfect way. Father, forgive us our sins in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. To those of you who turn from your sins and look to Christ for your hope, hear these words of assurance from the prophet Zephaniah in the Old Testament, chapter 3. Hear God's promise. Sing aloud, O daughter Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. 
He has turned away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall fear disaster no more. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior who gives victory. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you in his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. People of God, in Jesus Christ, the judgment of God, the judgments of God are no longer against you. Because of Jesus, when you turn from your sins, your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God. If you're able, would you rise and join us in celebrating uh, by singing Joy to the World? be seated. Well, welcome again, uh, particularly to those who are new among us. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Lyndon. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are about to move towards a baptism in our service. Uh, we have the privilege of witnessing the baptism together this morning of Audrey Raphael, but before she comes, I'm going to talk a little bit about what baptism is, what's about to happen before us. We just sang in the song Joy to the World that he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, that God's commitment is to rescue a people from the world and to bring his blessing to all the earth. And he does this 
by baptizing a people, by washing and cleansing for himself a people. Uh, We remember that in the Great Commission, after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, here in the earth, Jesus commissions his disciples to go and to make the disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, baptizing them. This is to be the mark of all of God's people in the world. And that was true not just uh, uh, post-resurrection, but actually we find that in the Bible there were earlier baptisms um, spoken of in the New Testament that had already occurred in the life of God's people. We can think of God's people being saved out of Egypt, as, as uh, the Apostle Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 10. Right? That, that the people of God being rescued out of slavery, they come up to this point of impending doom and death, right? cornered by Pharaoh's army on the one side and the Red Sea on the other. And what does God do at this moment of impending death? But he opens up the waters. He spreads the waters out before the people, and he brings them through the waters to safety. He consecrates a people for himself, and Paul refers to this as a baptism. A baptism of God's people, that God had brought all of his people out of, uh, out of slavery in Egypt into new life. Right? Baptism here is a resurrection from the dead. Okay, it's a death. It's a moving through the waters of death and judgment, which become judgment for the people, uh, for the people of Egypt and the cleansing and consecrating water for the people of God. We, we see the same thing in an earlier baptism that the Apostle Peter speaks of uh, the, the t- in the time of Noah. We think about the great flood that came, the waters being poured out from the heavens and dropping down onto the earth, these waters that become a judgment and a death for all of those who are outside of the ark. But for those who are within the ark of God's saving purposes, we find that these baptism waters come down and cleanse and consecrate Noah and his family. In both cases, baptism is an act of God which cleanses and sets apart God's people, sanctifying them and bringing them from death to life. Okay, and this is precisely how the New Testament talks about what baptism is. It's a resurrection. It's a bringing through death and into life. We can think of what the Apostle Paul says in various places about baptism as a, as, as a burial with Christ. Okay, it's an identification with Christ in his death, and it's a being raised with him. Okay, it's a burial, and it's a, and it's a raising. This is what's happening in our baptisms. Baptism is a person's passage from death into life. Okay. And this is precisely what we're about to witness this morning here. Another of God's children passing through the baptismal waters and being marked out and claimed as God's own, washed, cleansed, made new, buried with Christ, and raised with him in the baptism. Okay. Waters that mark out God's children in the world as those who belong to him, those who are cleansed by him, those who are put to death and raised again by God. This is the resurrection of life. This is the sacrament of resurrection. Now this time I'd like to invite Audrey Raphael to come forward and I have a few questions for her and we'll have the opportunity to hear from her her story. Okay. Audrey, I have a few questions for you, which you should already be familiar with. The first is this. Audrey, do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy? Do you? 
And do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel? Do you? How did you come to know and trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? I grew up in a Christian family, and I can't remember a time when I didn't believe what the Bible said. I always hoped that one day I would profess my faith, but I figured that I would do it later, when I was ready. But my standards of being ready meant that I had a perfect understanding of everything relating to God and the Bible. I'll never fully understand God. That's part of the beauty of him. He's beyond our comprehension. But I assumed that when I was older, I would. I drifted away from God and his word and stopped praying daily. I wasn't convicted and I did my own thing. I knew in my heart I shouldn't, but I thought the short-lasting satisfaction of sin was sustaining enough for me. It wasn't. The guilt grew worse and so did the urge to repent. On a whim, I started to read Little Woman, the heartwarming story of four sisters and their mother who live in poverty and yet are content in Christ. Each sister has a personal struggle, like a quick temper or vanity, and by their mother's counsel, they brought it to God, and he helped them. They were so aware of their flaws and imperfections, but were still so happy and loved each other dearly. They had a peace and joy that I envied, and I saw a clear connection between their improvements and contentedness to their closeness to God. I started reading my Bible and praying more, and I could see God working in my life. I saw he'd been calling me, convicting me, and I'd been pushing him away. I became more aware of my brokenness and of God's perfection. He was with me, and I wanted him to be. I could feel him nudging me towards himself, and that's when I realized I didn't have to do it all. I didn't have to have it all together. It was the opposite. I had to recognize my need for salvation and give God control of my life. I wanted him to claim me. I wanted him at the center of my life. It took a lot of wrestling and prayer, but I came to terms with the fact that I could be waiting for the perfect moment forever. God was calling me, and there was no point delaying him when I clearly knew my need. Amen. Thank you for sharing with us your story, and we praise God with you for the way he's been at work in your life, not on the basis of your own works, but because he's good, he's faithful to his children. A few more questions for you, Audrey. Do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes a follower of Christ? Do you? And do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? And finally, do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study or work for its purity and its peace? Do you? I do. Okay. Very good. Then we'll come this way. Father, we thank you for this, your daughter. We thank you for how you've been at work in her life. 
from before she was even in this world. You've known her. You've known this moment. And Father, we thank you. We thank you for the life that you brought to Audrey. We thank you for her family, for the way that they've shown her the way of salvation, the good news of Christ, and the way that she's taken hold of it for herself, even this day. Father, we thank you for cleansing her. We thank you for marking her out in the world as your own. Father, we ask that you would bless her, that she would go today with your blessing, with a sense of your presence and your spirit's work in her, with her, and your promise to keep her. We ask all of this with thanksgiving. In Christ's name, amen. If you join with me, if you join me in welcoming Audrey to the life of the church. All right. Well, this time, I believe Luke Cleland's going to put down the camera and lead us in a prayer for the church and the city in the world. Okay, let's pray. God, we praise you and thank you for your goodness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We cannot live, O oh God, but one moment and not see the evidence of your great glory all around us if we have the eyes to see. Even during this cold and damp winter day, we see your genius of creation. During a time when many of us find uh, winter difficult, God, help us to have eyes to see the beauty in what a season of death and cold and snow, giving way to the hope of a sun and eventual spring can remind us of and teach us about you. There are times that summer feels like such a distant memory, and I'm sure a similar feeling to what the nation of Israel felt as they waited and longed for a Messiah to come. Would he ever come? Would we ever have hope and peace? And many in this room, oh God, feel that they are in a spiritual winter where they feel alone and cold and far from you. But you are faithful. And just as the snow turns into rain and that rain turns into sun and flowers, you never fail. And even though the day seems dark and all seems lost, oh God, you never fail. And as evidence, you point us to a little town in the Middle East where the light of the world came. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is the answer to the question, will God save and will God answer me and will God show up? God, you will change this winter into summer, and you will be faithful. For you told us, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And Father, many in, this, in our neighborhood, many in the city of Toronto, and many in this world still live in a perpetual winter. They simply don't know or believe the Savior has come, that hope has come, that peace is truly here. And so, Father, I pray that this church that we as believers may be good signposts as we go about our days, as we go shopping, as we give gifts. May we be light posts to our friends, our neighbors, and our strangers, and remind all that you are faithful. And especially at this Christmas season when many per feel particularly alone and lost and without hope, God, that we would point to those in our city the great hope of Jesus the reminder that you, O oh God, are faithful, that the light of the world has come. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And well, at this time, we are going to dismiss the kids. <clears throat> the kids? Woo.
going through puberty again. I'm going to dismiss the kids to children's uh, church. So kids, if you want to come forward to the front, I know there's a lot of people visiting this morning. Uh, the way this works is you're more than welcome to keep your kids in the service, throughout the service, uh, to listen to the sermon. But we do have an age-appropriate lesson for children up to age, uh, up to grade five. That's outside the doors. So we're going to send forth the kids with our blessing, since we do see them as part of our church. And then as the kids are being dismissed, we'll have a time to greet one another, and it'll be a time to take up the offering and a time to, to, uh, to, to grab some coffee if need be. But kids, come to the front. Mrs. Sarah Lynn is going to lead us uh, in the dismissal. But once everyone's up to the front, uh, we'll dismiss you. Please follow along for the blessing of the children found on page 9 of your bulletin. People of God, what is our prayer for these children? May the peace of the Lord be with you. Lord Jesus Christ, you took the little children into your arms and you blessed them. We ask that you would bless the children of this church, take them into your arms of mercy, keep them from all evil, and help us to show them your unfailing love, that they may never know a day apart from you, and live to the glory of your holy name. Amen. And children, may the word of the Lord grow in your hearts. Go in peace. Okay, parents, at this time, we need you to actually check your child into their classroom, out the door to the left, if you're taking your child to a classroom. If you're not dropping a kid off, there is uh, offering baskets on the, on the, offering, on the uh, Lord's table in the front. You're more than welcome to uh, give at this time. You're also welcome to stand up, say hello to some people around you, even grab coffee. It'll be a couple minutes before the parents come back in. So please, we'll put on some background music. Please say hello to some people around you, and we'll turn our attention to the scripture reading in a couple of minutes.
check. All right, uh, we are going to turn our attention now to the reading of God's Word. Uh, for those who were with us last week, you'll know that in this Advent season, uh, Advent um, uh, meaning arrival, this time of, of anticipating Christmas and anticipating the celebration of Christ's arrival, the arrival of God in the flesh, Jesus Christ among us. Uh, but the season of Advent also points forward not just to his first coming, but of course to the second coming. Uh, what we're meant to, uh, to dwell on in the Christmas season is not just that Christ has come, but that Christ will come again. And so what we've done in this Christmas season is we're actually going through a series uh, through several chapters of the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation, which speaks of um, not just the past coming of Christ at Christmas, but again ties these events together with a second coming, uh, with Christ's return in the earth. And to help us with the reading, Rapha. The passage is from Revelation chapter 20, verse 1 to 15. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bowed him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came into life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the sands and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had received them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. 
and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and hate gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and hate were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found reading the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord for our church, and it is given for a good. Thank you, Rafa. Would you join with me in a word of prayer? Our Father, as we come to this passage, I'm reminded of what the Apostle Peter says of some of the words of the Apostle Paul, that they are difficult to understand. And Father, we come to this passage with a sense of trepidation, of fear and trembling, as it's been understood in so many different ways. Uh, And it's actually uh, been a text that has been used within the church against one another, uh, to do battle against one another, rather than perhaps seeing uh, a common enemy in the devil and a common savior in Christ. And we ask that you would do a powerful work by your spirit among us. Uh, that you would use this time of dwelling on this text, these words from you, as a work of unifying us in the power of the Spirit, that you would allow your word to come through in a way that's strong and powerful to us, in a way that would convict us and challenge us, in a way that would warn us where we need to be warned, in a way that would encourage us where we need to be encouraged, and we confess our utter need for you, God, to do this by your Spirit. We cannot do this alone. We ask that you would come now, Emmanuel, God with us, come by your spirit, speak to us, transform us by your spirit, we ask it in Christ's name, amen. Well, to the modern man and woman, the categories of this passage that we've just read in Revelation chapter 20 seem utterly strange, probably far-fetched, even fantastical. The end of history, you know, the slaying of a dragon, the defeat of death and the devil, this cosmic battle, this lake of fire and judgment. What does it all mean? What does it all mean? And what what I want us to see this morning is that the strongly symbolic language of this chapter gives us a snapshot, a real picture of God's response to wickedness in our world, of God's response to wickedness. It is a telling of the tale of God's cosmic battle with death and the devil, with all that's wrong in our world, with all that needs to be made right. All is not well in our world. We know this, you know this, probably in ways that are deeply personal to you, that all is not well, and in the face of all suffering, of all the darkness that we know, that we experience in this world, all the darkness that we can see in the present, but also in the past as we look back at world history and and, and across the world today, we see a ton of darkness, of despair, of brokenness, of sin, of alienation from God and and from one another. And what this passage tells us in the face of all brokenness, of all evil, of all wickedness, is that God has determined to make all wrongs right. He's come to settle accounts. Now we may be tempted to think that in the face of our own suffering, that God is indifferent to our suffering. 
that God is indifferent to our pain, that he doesn't care, or perhaps that he's not in control given the large-scale wickedness that seems to be able to prevail in the earth. It feels like God is far. God is hidden. God has abandoned us, perhaps. God is ambivalent. Uh, Maybe it feels even that God is cruel. He's cruel. How could he allow such pain, such wickedness to prevail in the earth? But what we find here in Revelation 20 is that the God of the Bible takes human suffering with absolute seriousness. He takes human suffering with absolute seriousness. He takes our suffering and our sin with with utmost seriousness. And if you're here this morning and you're wondering, in the midst of the deep brokenness of our world, will the wicked always win? Is God indifferent to sin and to suffering? Will death have the final word? For you, for your family, and for the world as a whole, our passage answers, in the epic battle between good and evil, between God and the devil, in this epic battle, Jesus has already won, Jesus is winning, and Jesus will win. Okay. This is what our passage affirms to us today. He's won He's winning, and he will win. And this, of course, was good news. Um, We can forget, in all of the complexity of reading Revelation, uh, some of the the larger-than-life language that's used, we can forget that this news was written to a group of first-century Christians who are under persecution, and that this this news was written to them as good news in the face of persecution, intense persecution. Christians being burned at the stake and thrown to the lions. It it didn't always feel to them like Christianity was winning, Uh, like the Christian faith was the true faith in the face of such despair, like Jesus was winning, like Christians were victorious. It didn't always feel this way. And to such Christians in the first century, and even to us today, along with them, John instructs us in this book that Jesus wins. Jesus wins. He's won, he's winning, and he will win. First, we'll consider that Jesus has won and how this plays out in our passage this morning. Our passage begins with an angel, or a a word that can be translated messenger, a messenger descending from heaven and seizing, binding, and eventually slaying the dragon, who in this passage is identified with the devil and Satan, the ancient serpent, of old. And this reference to the serpent is, of course, in the biblical imagination, identifying the dragon in this story with the opening pages of the scriptures. Genesis chapter 3, where we find God saying that the woman will crush the the head of the serpent. And this, this, uh, this battle between the human race and this serpent figure ends up getting developed in all kinds of ways throughout the the scriptures, where God's enemies are often identified as serpentine kind of figures. Uh, uh, You can think about Goliath, for example, uh, identified as one who's wearing the scaly armor and whose head ends up being crushed and cut off. There's kind of a a note back to the beginning promise about the seed of the woman that's going to crush the head of the serpent. And these kinds of images come up time and again uh, through the scriptures. And so the reader is invited to wonder where and when 
um, after, you know, following this, this promise in Genesis 3 that the serpent's head will be crushed by the seed of the woman, the, the, the reader is invited to wonder, where and when is this going to happen? Where is this battle going to take place? Um, how? Uh, when? What will this look like, this slaying of the serpent dragon figure? And this is precisely the question of our passage, uh, that our passage engages this morning. I'll begin in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hands the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Here we find that the serpent slaying, proclaimed at the start of the Bible, is, is again, it's, it's what's happening here. Um, and it happens, we find, according to Revelation 20, in two stages. Yeah, there's a, this dragon slaying or serpent slaying that happen, happens in two stages with a thousand years between them. Now, I should note that the number 10 in the Bible is often used as the number of completion, okay, of fullness. And when it's multiplied as a hundred or a thousand, it signals vastness, uh, again, completion, but, but, uh, but an abundant completion. Right? Um, maybe similar to the way that you might say, I've got a thousand things to do today, a million things to do. You can think about the way that this comes up in the Bible itself. Uh, God, owns, God is the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Right? Now, this is not a statement about, you know, that if there's more than a thousand hills in the world, with cattle on it, that God doesn't own those also. Right? Uh, the cattle on a thousand hills is that God owns it all. He owns it all. Right? A thousand is this number of completion. Uh, and in any case, what we find here is this two-stage victory over the dragon, where there's this millennium, this thousand-year reign that stands between them, between the first uh, the slaying of the dragon and then a final destruction of the dragon. Right? The first stage is when the angel, we're told, or the messenger who holds the keys to the abyss comes down. Now, with a broader reading of Revelation, uh, the person who holds the keys is identified with Jesus himself. Okay, Jesus, the Son of God, who's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus is the one who has the authority to, to open and to, and to lock the abyss. And this messenger seizes the dragon, we're told, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and binds him for a thousand years. Why? Why is this devil, this Satan figure, uh, or this dragon figure bound for a thousand years? Well, it goes on to say, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. The idea here, to be clear, is not that Satan is bound and killed at the outset, but that a decisive battle has been fought and won against the devil. And he is now, following this decisive battle, limited, debilitated, in one sense, in one sense from the text, that he is bound from deceiving the nations. Now, some, now this has been a point of division in the life of the church, but some, mistakenly, I believe, have come to interpret this first battle as something that is going to happen at some time in the future. Um, but it seems clear from the book of Revelation in the context of the broader scriptures of Israel and the New Testament 
that this has already happened, that this battle, that this initial battle of binding Satan has already happened. It's, it's already happened in history. And you ask, when? When did this happen? Well, it happened in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus' parable about the binding of the strong man, Matthew 12 or Luke 11, that unless the strong man, man is bound, Jesus says, the people of God can't even begin to plunder and to oppose the works of the devil. And Jesus, as the parable shows, came to bind the strong man. That's what he came to do. And he does. He accomplishes this in his coming, which is why the demons flee before him in every case, which is why he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning following his sending out of the apostles to do ministry. In Jesus' ministry, we find that the devil and his works are being overthrown. And more than that, in his death and resurrection, the devil is decisively seized and bound even for a thousand years, which is to say, for that long period of time, that intervening period between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. Now, I admit that much of this sounds very strange to us, does it not? That Jesus even had to bind the devil? What could that possibly mean? This sounds very strange. Well, yes. I mean, we, we, we need this. And one of the things that I think we don't recognize, maybe particularly in our own Western context, is the need for Jesus to have bound the devil. Remember that for most of world history, and in most cultures, and even to the present day in most places uh, outside of the West, people have been very much aware of demonic presences, right? a spiritual darkness in the world. This is real. I mean, this is real for the vast majority of the world and certainly vast majority of human history. This is real. Uh, demonic presences, right? uh, spiritual darkness, spiritual attacks, things that every human culture has found different ways of responding to. How do we respond to this spiritual darkness? Right? And... It's interesting uh, to note that with the spread of Christianity, there seems to be this real disarming of pagan religion. Okay. Uh, there are historians of religion who have interestingly noted this, that there seems to have been a real transition underway with the advent of Christi Christianity and its spread where paganism and the various gods of paganism have lost their purchase. Uh, they've lost their power, they've lost their social plausibility. It seems that at the advent of Christian faith and with the spreading of Christianity over the globe, there comes this undermining, this binding of the devil, uh, as though something fundamentally has shifted with the advent of Christ in his person, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And this claim seems to coincide very closely with one of the points made here in this passage, that the devil, the devil here in this first defeat, is not bound in every regard, okay, in every possible way, but specifically he's bound from what? From deceiving the nations. Now think about this. Up to this point in history, leading up to the death and resurrection of Christ, Yahweh, the God of Israel, remained almost exclusively the God of one nation, one nation, Israel. But the question we can ask is, what happens following Jesus' death and resurrection? What happens following this? Well, the nations come to believe. Okay, this is exactly how the narrative plays out. Think about a place like John 12, where Jesus says, now is the time of, uh, now is the judgment of this world. Okay, Jesus is, has arrived on the scene. Uh, he's, he's doing battle with the devil. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler, ruler of this world be cast out. 
And, and I, he says, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. See? It's this wonderful promise. It's this wonderful indication and explanation of what Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are all, all about. Right? He's come to bind the devil, to cast out the devil and the works of the devil. And he's come to establish his own reign in the world so that now the nations might come to know. So that all people, he's going to begin to draw all people to himself. And then we can ask the, the further question, what happens immediately after his death and resurrection and ascension? Well, the opening chapters of the book of Acts tell us very specifically. We're told Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Cretans and Arabs, this long list that we're told who are coming to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and who are believing, uh, who are embracing the gospel of Jesus. The nations are coming to trust in Christ, we find. Asians, Africans, Romans, Arabs. It's all in view here in the opening chapters of Acts. And, and it's like uh, uh, the writer Luke is trying to draw the reader's attention to say, look what's happening following the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. The nations are flowing in just as the ancient prophecies have prophesied. Right? There's a sense in which the nations are no longer blinded. The nations are coming to faith. And this is what's happening in the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus is that now draw, he's now drawing all people to himself. The devil's been bound from deceiving the nations. And what was once this small religion in this obscure corner of the Roman Empire has since then, as we can you know, just make a historical observation, has since then grown to become the most, arguably the most dominant world force in the world. So that while less than 1% of the world population worshipped Yahweh, the God of Israel, in year zero, okay, or one, uh, you know, in the first century, what we find is today, close to a third of the world population identifies as Christian. Right? There's been this radical transformation of this tiny little movement in an obscure corner of the Roman Empire to see that this thing has, become gro uh, has, has grown way beyond the bounds of Israel, right? to the nations, to the nations. But then there's a second stage of the devil's defeat that we find in verse 7 and following. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, which is to say, the victory of Christ, which began his thousand-year millennial reign with the binding of Satan, will come one day to an end when Satan will be released to deceive the nations once more. But it's important to point out to observe here that it's precisely at this point uh, it's precisely at the point where he's released to deceive the nations again where he is decisively and immediately defeated overthrown we find in verse 9 but fire came down from heaven and consumed them and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur some have pictured uh, the end times battle the battle of armageddon as it's been called to be this terrible war between two equally matched sides but what's striking about this end times battle, as it's pictured here in Revelation 20, is that it isn't much of a war. <laughs> it's not much of a war. The devil rounds up all who are opposed to Christ in the end. And in a moment, they're all destroyed. They're all destroyed, judged, and swiftly defeated. Jesus, we find, has won. And he will win. 
And the emphasis here is on his determination to bring in the nations. That God has never been about one particular ethnic group in opposition or exclusion to all the others, but rather he's been about bringing into reality a world religion. Okay, this is what Christianity is about. Anybody who claims otherwise is mistaken. Right? That God would just be about one ethnic people. That's not the Christian religion. That's not even the Jewish religion. Okay, the Jewish religion was one that opened up into the nations. Right? But rather, what we see is that God is bringing about, bringing into reality, this people of every tribe and tongue. And he's doing this through Jesus binding and defeating sin, death, and the devil. So Jesus has won. There's a real sense in which we can look back to the events of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, and say he's won. Uh, the decisive blow has been given to the works of the devil and death. But we move on in our passage to the next section where we find not only has he won, but he's winning. He's presently winning, reigning with his saints even now. Look with me at verse 4 and following. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now again, it has become popular in some Christian circles, uh, particularly in the 20th century, to think about these in futuristic terms. Okay? That these have an entirely future referent point. Okay? Um, but I believe that this misses the point, or at least it misses an initial fulfillment. Okay? So it could be that this is, there's an initial fulfillment here and that this does point forward in some fundamental way to something to come. But what I believe we're instructed to see, and this would take much uh, more time to unpack, so I'll just assert it here and we can talk after, is that the mark of the beast in this context is the idolatry of Israel and the nations who are marked by Caesar worship. Uh, remember the time where they are calling for Jesus' crucifixion, right? Crucify him, crucify him. And then say shortly after, we have no king but Caesar. Okay, this is coming from the Jews in collusion with the Romans. Kill Jesus. Our king, our allegiance is to Caesar. Our allegiance is to Rome. But here John speaks of the remnant who had not worshipped the beast or its image. And they would die for it, of course. This remnant would die for it. And so be identified as priests of God and of Christ, raised from the dead to reign with Christ. They would not worship the beast. Okay. They would not worship the beast. And it begs the question for us today. Whom do you worship? Right. What are we worshiping as, even as God's people? And it seems to me that all of us, in our own ways, are being beckoned to demonstrate our fidelity, our faithfulness to some so-called God, whether that's an institution, whether that's the nation, whether that's a secular political regime. All of us are being beckoned by some other God to have our ultimate allegiance aligned with that so-called God. And that this is what it is to identify with the beast in opposition to Christ. The beast as that which opposes Christ and his worship and his authority in the world. How many of us will be marked with whatever marks we need in order to not stand out in our culture, 
to not face persecution of any kind. We'll receive whatever marks we might need and so be marked as belonging to the beast. It's tempting to choose life and safety, being included, avoiding persecution, living in comfort, being part of the majority. But what we find in the message and life of Jesus and in this passage is that it isn't safety and it isn't hanging on to life, which is the way to life. But rather, Jesus' way is the way of death. It's the way of self-giving. It's the way of dying to self, where death is the way to life. If anyone wishes to save his life, Jesus says, he will lose it. And whoever loses his life will save it. He goes on in verse 4. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Again, some may envision these people who are raised with Christ to be this special group who suffered martyrdom uh, and so had this special first resurrection that was exclusive to them. But again, I believe this misses the mark of what we're called to see here and that instead, what John sees here is consistent with what Paul says elsewhere. That in Christ, we are a people who have been raised with him to the heavenly places. We've, we who've believed and been baptized stand as those who have been raised with Christ. We've undergone what John calls the first resurrection. We've been raised and we will be raised. Or as Paul puts it, you've been buried with him in his baptism. Uh, with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith. Now, this is a strange thing to say, I admit. Another strange thing to say. But it's what the Bible says, that you and I, by faith in Christ, have been united with Christ, and in, we've been united with him in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. Okay? We have been raised with him. All that is Christ's belongs to us. All that is Christ's is ours. Okay? His obedience his, offering, uh, his self-offering to the Father for our atonement, his death, we've been crucified with him, and his resurrection, all is ours. We've been united with Christ. And so we have, in a, in a very real way, and, and I believe in the most fundamental way, the resurrection, a first resurrection, has already happened for those in Christ. We have been raised with him. And John goes on in verse 6, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection, over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, in short, what we find here is that all who are in Christ, all who refuse to worship the false god of the empire, the beast, the nation, and to persevere in Christ, we are those who are now presently reigning with Christ through this millennial reign. Okay, through the reign that he's established in his life, death, and resurrection, we, the people of God, in him, who have been raised with him, we are the ones who presently reign with him. To which, to which you say, what millennial reign? You know, what are you talking about, millennial reign? It doesn't look like we're reigning over anything as Christians. In fact, it looks like the world's getting darker, and we are the ones who are being dominated the future of Christians and of Christianity, for that matter, is not looking very good. It's not looking very bright. To which I say, I believe that perspective misses the bigger picture. Which is what John gives us here. 
that yes, the battle is real. And yeah, it may look very grim. It may feel intolerable, the suffering at times. But that's because victory, after the pattern of Christ, comes through death and suffering and through long endurance, through a millennial reign. Not a hundred years, not a single lifetime, but through a millennial reign. This is how victory comes, long and slow and through suffering. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, the end is only going to come after Christ has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now here's, here's one way to think about how Christ has already established his rule. When the Romans were expanding their military power okay, in the first several centuries uh, A.D., um, you know, taking over large parts of you know, North Africa, Asia, Middle East, and beyond. It was one thing to say that they were in charge, that they had conquered, that they had you know, defeated, and that they had power, that they had real power, that, that, uh, that, that the Roman emperor, that he was the emperor over, over the world. But it was quite another to bring about concrete change in every time and place and to see everybody come to a proper understanding of and relationship to the emperor and to the empire as a whole. And so it is with God's kingdom. Jesus is king. Okay. When, when, when missionaries go into foreign lands that have never, never heard the gospel, they, they ought not to go in saying, would you please you know, believe and bring in the reign of Christ so that Jesus might reign in this place? No. You go in and you declare that Jesus is king. He's established his rule and his authority over all the, the earth. Okay. Everything belongs to him. He is king. Now the question is whether or not you will recognize and bow to his kingship. He's already been made king of all the earth. Jesus is king. He reigns over all the earth. He's, al he's already seized and bound the devil. He's already purchased sinners with his blood. He's already completed the decisive battle with sin, death, and the devil. It is finished, Jesus says, from the cross. And yet, we observe that the outworking of his dominion, bringing all peoples into his good and glorious light, still needs to be brought about. And this, this is the basic work, the fundamental work of the church, the body of Christ in the world, not through military power, as has been done, or through domination and domineering, but through the ministry of the word, the word of Christ, prayer, through suffering, through sacrifice, even martyrdom, all after the power of Christ, and in the uh, after the pattern of Christ and in the power of Christ, until all his enemies have been made a footstool, and death itself is destroyed. Jesus has won. Jesus is winning. And finally, more briefly, we find that Jesus will win. In his final judgment over the wicked, Jesus will win. You can look with me at verses 11 and following. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown 
into the lake of fire. Now this obviously is an incredibly sober and grave warning. It points forward to the final judgment, a judgment which is described in this text as a judgment according to works. Now many, if you've been in the church for any length of time, you may be surprised by this, um, that people will be judged according to what they have done or had done, as it says here. Aren't we saved by faith and not by works? What what does this mean, judgment according to what they had done? But it's important to recognize that this is simply a repetition of what Jesus says elsewhere in Matthew 25 or what Paul says in Romans 2 or what James says throughout his letter and Peter says in his own way. Everyone will be judged on the basis of what they have done. That's throughout the scriptures. Now, of course, for those who have trusted in Christ, there will be a merciful judgment, even if some, as Peter says, only escape as through the fire without much to show. But for the rest, for all who stand apart from Christ, whose name is not found in the book of life, for the rest, there will be an absolutely, not, not severe, but just judgment. It's a just judgment that comes on all apart from Christ. There will be an eternal and fiery judgment for all who stand in defiance of the God who made them. For all whose names are not found written in the book of life. It's a sober warning to us to say that if we miss relationship with the God who made us, if we live our entire lives in defiance against the God who made us, we never pay any attention to this God, to drawing near to this God, to finding out how we can walk in right relationship with this God, we will be judged accordingly. And there will be a just judgment in the end for all the things that we've done and left undone. Jesus is one. He's defeated death and the devil, and their end is coming soon. And the nations are flooding in in the meantime, and will keep flooding in until the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, even as the waters cover the sea. Jesus is winning. He's raised the church to life in him. We've received this first resurrection and are reigning with him even now, even if it doesn't look like it, and we will continue to reign with him until all the enemies of God are made a footstool and Jesus finally will win in his final judgment of all the wicked, in his judgment according to works. And the question I believe this passage leaves us with is again a sober question. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? It might seem like a straightforward question for the church, but I believe that this question is actually directed first and foremost to the church, to those who are prone to worshiping the beast or worshiping Christ, that we have a decision to make. Which side are you on? The side side of Caesar, whose gate is wide and way is easy and leads to destruction, or the side of Jesus, whose gate is narrow, whose way is hard, but it leads to life. Now, I said at the start that the Lord God of Israel takes our sin and suffering with utmost seriousness, so serious, in fact, that he has entered into our suffering with us, defeated sin, death, and the devil, And will judge the earth on the basis of what each person has done. Jesus is the strong man who binds and plunders the devil in order to give good gifts to his own house. And I'll close with this. As Jesus says in Luke 11, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, He takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. 
Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Let's pray. Our Father, in considering a word like this from your mouth in this apocalyptic book of Revelation to John, Father, we confess that this is in many ways a, both a glorious word and a hard word. It's a hard word for us who are prone to sin, prone to running away, to going our own way. Uh, prone to not submitting to the one who has all authority in heaven and earth. And Father, we confess that we are a weak and needy people and, and we need your help. We need you to send your spirit to empower us to live the lives that we ought to, to live to the glory of your holy name. We ask that you would do this in us, your church, for your glory in the world and for your light to go forward to the nations. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, at this time, we, the church, are invited to a table. Uh, it's a table where Jesus, the risen one, who has all victory over heaven and earth, all authority has been given to him. It's a table where he invites us to commune with him. That he tells us that he's not a God who stands far off from us in our sin and misery, but he's drawn near to us. He's come to us, and he's come to feed us, and he's come to welcome us to table fellowship with him. I invite you now to rise as we go to the Lord's table. And you can join with me in the affirmation of faith found on page 11 of the bulletin. This is from Isaiah chapter 9. Please join in the all section. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. As we go to the table, let me ask, is the Father with us? Is Christ among us? Is the Spirit here? This is our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Our Father, you've done everything to set this meal before us, even in the face of our enemies. Father, we are grateful for all that you've done, things that you've done that we rarely consider the battle that you fought on our behalf in Christ, in his life, death, and resurrection. And we're grateful for Christ who ascends and, and intercedes for us and who, again, welcomes us by his own blood into communion with the Father by his Spirit. What a work you've done. Father, we thank you for this invitation from you, and we ask that you would feed us now as we go to your table. In Christ's name, amen. Therefore, let us proclaim the mystery of our faith, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again, Christ is the host of this feast, and we are his guests. Please be seated.
It was on the night that Jesus was to be betrayed that he invited his disciples to come and to draw near to him, the Holy One of Israel. And he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. A little later, and in much the same way, he took the cup and said, This cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins, as often as you drink it. Do this in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul reminds us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. This is the meal of our Lord, and he extends it to weak and helpless sinners. He extends it to those not just who feel strong in the faith, but to those who feel weak. He invites us to be built up and strengthened in him by his own self-offering of his body and his blood. And so the way that we receive this here at Christ Church Toronto is we invite all those who have been baptized, who have made profession of faith, uh, who have called Christ their own, their Savior, to come to this table. You may come from a very different church background, and you're absolutely welcome. Those who are in good standing with the local church, uh, again, who have confessed their sins to God, who have placed their trust in Christ, you're welcome. This is Christ's table, and it's his invitation that calls you forward to feast among his people to join into communion with him and with one another. If you're here and you're visiting and you're not sure what you believe, if you're here and you're sure that you don't believe in Christ, we are glad that you're here. And still we would ask that you refrain from participating in this, in this meal as we believe that it could be of detriment to your own walk with the Lord and your own figuring out who this God is and what his invitation is to you. There are a number of prayers you can find in your bulletins. Uh, that you can consider about what it might mean for you to t take hold of Christ by faith before coming to this table. But again, uh, for all who have trusted in Christ, you're welcome. Uh, in a moment, uh, after I've said a word of prayer, I'll invite you to stand, to merge into the two middle aisles, to come forward. There'll, there will be stations on the right and on the left uh, where you'll receive bread and wine. If for whatever reason you can't receive uh, bread, uh, there's gluten-free gluten, gluten -free option on the table. If you can't receive wine, there's also grapefruit, uh, grape juice, not grapefruit, grape juice um, option on the table as well. And there will be a pastor behind the table who would love to pray with you and for you uh, if, if so desired. Let me say a word of prayer, and then once you see the station set up, the table will be open. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would set apart now this bread and this wine for your purposes of building up your church, that you would give us life, and that in this meal we would find you present, near, drawing near to us as we draw near to you. Build us up, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen.
Brothers and sisters, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat. And this is the blood of Christ shed for you. Take and drink. Father, we thank you again for these, your gifts to us. I ask that you would build us up, your people, to be your faithful people in the world in response to Christ's great faithfulness to us. We pray it in his name. Amen.
Amen. Uh, I just, I'm going to have very brief announcements, and then we're going to sing O Come and Come Emmanuel and receive the benediction. The first is, uh, it seems there's people visiting today. If you want more information about our church, the easiest thing to do is scan the QR code and fill out a connection card, and someone from the church will quickly uh, be in touch with you, answer any questions that you might have about Christianity, about our church. Uh, we don't always preach about dragons being slain and lakes of fire, but uh, come next week, we'll do it a little bit longer for Advent. Uh, the last announcement I just want to highlight your attention to is we do have a sing-along tonight at 4.30. It looks like the weather's going to hold out. I'm guessing it's going to be a muddy mess, and we're going to do our best not to destroy that field. Um, but it's at Taylor Creek Park. If you'd like to come, we're going to sing everything from Jingle Bells to classic Christmas carols. It's a lot of fun. There'll be snacks. The kids will have a blast. And it's a great time for us to uh, celebrate all that's wonderful about uh, the coming of Christ. So would you please make plans to join us at 4.30? Probably put your kids in mud boots, uh, I'm guessing, and uh, the, the fire will be roaring, there'll be marshmallows and other things, and hopefully the fire department doesn't get called this year, but we'll find out, to be determined. But at this time, let's rise, let's sing uh, loudly, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and then receive the benediction. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear Rejoice Rejoice Receive God's blessing. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Go in peace. We are finished. And may God bless you this week. We hope to see you this evening to join us at the sing-along. Go in peace.